0: My name is John Herbst. I'm the head of the Dinu Petritzio Eurasia Center, and we have a a real treat in store for you today. We'll be having a book talk with Agnia Grigos, who has just written Beyond Crimea, The New Russian Empire, a book that I read before it came out, and I can tell you it's wonderful. Um, Agnia is, you never know from looking at her, is an old pro dealing with um, Russia and the area right around it. She's the author of three books besides Beyond Crimea. She's authored The Politics of Energy and Memory uh, Between the Baltic States and Russia. And the, um, she's the author of the new forthcoming New Geopolitics of Gas. Uh, this book, Beyond Crimea, is important because it lays out in an easily accessible, readable fashion the systematization of the Kremlin's compatriot policy. And compatriot is the fancy word for not just ethnic Russians, but Russian speakers who may live in Russia or may not. And Moscow has assiduously created aspects of a policy that starts with information, starts with culture. It moves on to establishing contacts, to issuing passports, to Russians and Russian speakers, people who identify with, you might say, the Russian language and the Russian cultural space, and they develop these contacts for political advantage, ultimately including aggression, as seen in Georgia and Ukraine, to meet Russian state interests. And so things that seem benign are not necessarily benign. And with that, I'll turn it over to Agni to explain more.
1: Well, thank you, first of all, Ambassador Herbst and the Atlantic Council for having me and the audience for coming. It's a real pleasure. And it's uh, really, well, first, greatly rewarding after a long research project and a long writing project to finally have the product in my hands and, uh, and on paper. Um, and I think uh, probably many in the audience have uh, written their own book, so you, can, uh, uh, you know the feeling. Um, and really, I started this book, um, the idea uh, for it came to me in 2014. Uh, uh, the start of the year, so ahead of Crimea's annexation and ahead of the conflict in eastern Ukraine. But I was starting to observe and uh, the rhetoric coming out of Moscow. And the rhetoric was something along the lines that uh, the change in the regime in Kiev, the Euromaidan movement, now somehow spells a potential threat to Russian speakers or Russian minorities in Crimea and eastern Ukraine and the rhetoric went that, uh, and therefore, you know, we must protect them, um, or they're asking for our protection, and so on. And at the time, I really thought, okay, well, this is deja vu, and actually, I've seen this movie before. Um, I, uh, it reminded me a lot of the work I had done previously in, in relation to the Baltic states, um, in terms of Russia, some of Russia's um, soft power efforts there. It reminded me a lot of what had happened in Georgia in 2008, and a a lot of the rhetoric there around protecting uh, uh, Russian citizens and Russian compatriots were the exact words of uh, President at the time Medvedev and Prime Minister Putin. It reminded me going back uh, to Transnistria, um, to the late 80s and early 90s, um, and the war fought there uh, with Soviet troops, again, protecting the rights of Russian speakers in Transnistria. So when I embarked on this project, I, I hoped to look at uh, uh, what, have, what have been Russia's compatriot policies, uh, how they have been systematized, how they differed across the different post-Soviet states, how they differed, let's say, in the Baltic states versus in Ukraine, versus Georgia, versus Central Asia, uh, versus Armenia, Belarus, and so on. Um, and how these compatriot policies fit in with the broader goals of uh, Russia's foreign policy, its foreign policy toolkit, and even its military tactics um, and ambitions. So my findings indeed were that uh, Russia has pursued a a highly consistent uh, policy towards uh, the so-called compatriots uh, there are striking similarities to the to how they were pursued in the 14 different uh, post-Soviet republics, uh, and uh, surprising, uh, uh, surprising fi- findings on how they fit, how can patriot policies fit in other Russian policy toolkit like soft power, information warfare, passportization, and so on. So, Before I go in a little bit into my findings, just so we're on the same page, I'll define just a little bit um, and discuss what are these compatriots. So as Ambassador Herbst mentioned, they can be ethnic Russians residing abroad. Um, And this would number about 25 million people outside the Russian Federation. But this is far from the definition that um, that the Russian government has used. And in fact, they have, uh, produced over the last 20 years more than 20 documents, policies, programs, and so on that deal w- with um, the Russian compatriots, how to treat them, how to uh, use them as part of foreign policy, and so on. Um, so in the narrow se- in the most narrow sense, again, they could be just ethnic Russians, they could be Russian speakers. Now, wh- what does that mean? It's essentially in, uh, in groups of individuals who use Russian habitually in their day-to-day life. Um, so, And they don't have to be and are often not necessarily just uh, ethnic Russians. Um, they can be, for example, ethnic Ukrainians in Odessa that predominantly use Russian in their day-to-day life. They can be the Gagaus in Moldova that have their own Gagauzian language. But often, day-to-day, they end up using Russian. So these are, again, the also Russian compatriots. Um, and they number about 30 million people. Uh, taken Taking together with the ethnic Russians and the Russian speakers uh, even more broadly Russia looks at Russian compatriots um, and they view them as part of what they call the Russian world. so these individuals that um, the Ruskimir foundation, for example counts as uh, totaling about thirty five million people they they can be of various ethnicities, but essentially they have to uh, they have to have some sort of cultural historical even spiritual connection to Russia, the Russian Empire, um, and the Soviet Union. So essentially that could involve almost 185 nationalities of, um, of people who have historically lived on the territory of the Russian Empire or in the current Russian, uh, the Russian Federation. So these compatriots have become a, um, you know, a political a political concept, um, an almost a legal category. And uh, efforts to use them for foreign policy ambitions, and particularly for territor- Russia's territorial ambitions, um, are most effective when three conditions are present. So essentially when there is this concentrated and significant pop- uh, population of uh, so-called Russian compatriots, uh, two, when they reside on the border with the Russian Federation. And three, when they are perceived receptive to Russia's influence. So, when these conditions are present, um, Russian compatriots can really become a tool, I found, of Russia's territorial expansion. And in the book, I, I model essentially what I call a seven stage re imperialization trajectory. So, it's, um, I'm, I'm a you know, academic by background, so I have to have terms like the, you know, re-imperialization trajectory. (laughs) But essentially what it means is that, um, and the trajectory follows that there's softer, softer policies of Russia's influence, um, and they progressively escalate towards harder and more aggressive policies. Uh, So they start uh, with soft power, and this is really uh, an attempt to use uh, linguistic, cultural, and religious uh, uh, organizations and appeals to Russian compatriots or you know, these broad individuals that we discussed abroad. Um, the Ruskimir the Russian World Foundation is a big player here um, in terms of providing linguistic training and cultural support and so on. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church is another very important player, um, especially uh, under the leadership of Patriarch Kirill, uh, who has been highly influential in uh, promoting this concept of the the Russian world. Um, And the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, uh, you know, counts uh, 150 million people as members. Um, It's highly influential in most of the post-Soviet states. Um, So this is the, the, the first stage, soft power efforts. The second stage is uh, humanitarian policies. And humanitarian policies, um, oftentimes in the case of Russia, well, or almost exclusively, uh, they deal with trying to support uh, um, the the rights of uh, ethnic Russians and Russian speakers in foreign states, uh, specifically in the post-Soviet states, Uh, uh, their efforts um, uh, also an escalating, uh, oftentimes trumped up and completely fabricated human rights violations. Uh, uh, there are efforts to use international organizations for these means. Uh, uh, the Russian government also creates their own organizations to try to study these uh, human rights violations and so on. Uh, there is some humanitarian aid. Uh, for example, interestingly, in Transnistria, um, at least in 2008, the, the Russian government was paying pensions uh, to Russian citizens in Transnistria, so a type of aid. Uh, Sometimes peacekeeping operations can be involved in this stage as well. Um, The third stage is, um, and really also these stages are all, they're all somewhat intertwined and uh, they can vary uh, in their sequence, they can occur simultaneously. But the third stage is compatriot policies and really when institutions are being used, uh, uh, to engage uh, uh, these Russian minorities or Russian speakers abroad, and these in- include Russian federal agencies for the purposes. Um, they they include government uh, programs run by the city of Moscow, especially under former Mayor Lushkov. uh They include various foundations, uh, the well the the Ruski Mir Foundation, the Ruski Dom, the Russia House organization. Uh, it includes the World Congress of Russian Compatriots, which is held every three years, um, as well as um, some support for for transnational groups like uh, the Cossacks. And uh, this is interesting because, I mean, you may recall that in eastern Ukraine, the Cossacks in 2014 had created their own short-lived uh, Cossacks People's Republic before it was absorbed into um, the, the the Luhansk People's Republic. So this is the the compatriot policy stage, really trying to um, engage um, these minorities into organizations and trying to get them uh, active uh, politically. Uh, There's also some military training involved, uh, uh, paramilitary camps for the the youth, uh, Russian-speaking youth of the post-Soviet space that that participate in camps called Soyuz. Moving forward after uh, compatriot policies, um, the next step, and I think actually the most important step, or one that has really been understudied and its full significance maybe not recognized, is passportization. Now, and what I call passportization is um, uh, a rather systemic effort to hand out uh, Russian passports and Russian citizenship to groups of people resi- residing outside of Russia's borders. Um, and thus turned them not just, uh, turned them from just simply compatriots, you know, a rather fuzzy legal category, into Russian citizens. Now, um, and doing it systemically in specific territories. Um, if you uh, look back in, uh, in the early 2000s and even the 90s in South Ossetia and Apazia, there was really a concentrated effort uh, to hand out Russian, citizen, Russian passports. In Crimea, well ahead of Crimea's annexation, in fact, after the Orange Revolution of 2004, uh, there was an, again a, a concerted effort on um, the, consul, uh, the consuls in Crimea to hand out these passports and so on. So this is a really real turning point, turning again just simply these compatriots into Russian Russian citizens. And why is this important? Because um, uh, Russian um, government policies, um, their foreign policy, national security policy, and many others have always been quite explicit about the protection of Russia's citizens abroad. Uh, in terms of compatriots, uh, it's been fuzzy, but actually that has also evolved. Uh, over the last five years, uh, a lot of Russian government uh, documents have been increasingly more explicit about protecting not just uh, Russian citizens, but also Russian compatriots abroad. So. Coming to the next step, um, so now once you have uh, Russian compatriots and Russian citizens in certain territories in abroad, now you move on to the information warfare stage, which is essentially you know, aggressive propaganda to um, try to either sow di- ethnic discord in uh, neighboring states or to try again uh, highlight these issues of um, Uh, you know, human rights violations or various sorts of uh, discriminations against the so-called Russian compatriots, uh, Russians and Russian speakers. Um, And uh, with with part of that uh, campaign also uh, try to raise this urgent need for their protection. And then really comes the next stage, uh, stage six, which is protection. When you go beyond uh, rhetorical protection or calls for protection, to um, starting discussing their military protection. Um, And the final stage is, uh, well, can be or could be annexation. Um, Again, annexation is not necessarily uh, um, a final outcome and uh, not necessarily a necessary outcome. It's one option. Uh, In the end, uh, we've seen uh, instead, uh, well, only in Crimea, we've seen annexation. We've seen frozen conflicts emerge instead in South Ossetia, uh, Abkhazia, Transnistria, and so on. But uh, nonetheless, even these frozen conflicts serve uh, as an end to, to the means for, for the Russian government because they create you know, lack of territorial integrity for these states. It really dampens their future efforts to join the European Union or NATO if they have uh, you know, territorial instability and such problems or civil conflict. So this is a, I'll, I'll try to be brief. I won't go into much uh, into the case studies um, on each of the different countries. You can read that in the book of, if of interest. So I'll turn it over.
0: Thank you, I thank you for that presentation. Um, in your book, you do a very good job describing the move from one stage to another, for example, in Georgia, for example, in Transnistria. Um, I think your book is important because it, it tells people, and hopefully policymakers, that this is a pattern which in fact could be reproduced, so we can take steps to stop it. So having said that, I noticed you talked about the three conditions which make it mm-hmm. successful, these Kremlin tactic successful, concentrated population, on a border with Russia, receptive to Russian influence. Two of those three certainly apply in Estonia, and Latvia, and Kazakhstan.
1: Absolutely. Tell,
0: tell us how you, you see this playing out in, nice, in those three countries.
1: OK. Well, to start first with um, L- Estonia and Latvia. So certainly there is a concentration of um, you know, so-called Russian compatriots, again, Russian speakers and ethnic Russians, uh, both uh, in Estonia's eastern, uh, eastern region um, in Ida-Viru can- uh, County in Narva. Um, There, and I would say probably in Estonia, um, the situation is uh, most concerning because I I would say that the the trajectory has moved furthest along. They have been most successful in achieving passportization in Narva. Uh, Currently in Narva, uh, about more than 30%, about 36% of the Narva population uh, currently has Russian citizenship. So this is pretty concerning. I mean, the numbers are pretty small. It's a small town. So there are about, let's say, uh, roughly 20,000 individuals that hold uh, Russian citizenship. Uh, But now if you look at South Ossetia, if we remember back, I mean, that was just 50,000 people. So uh, maybe large numbers are not uh, not so necessary. Um, uh, However, certainly, uh, well, now looking, contrasting this with Latvia, um, though Latvia doesn't have passportization that has been so successful as in Estonia's uh, Narva City, it does indeed have the largest uh, population of the three Baltic states of um, ethnic Russians, um, uh, concentrated in Latgale, which is a region uh, that borders the Russian Federation. Um, so uh, there, in some cities and regions, almost uh, you know, 97% of the population are Russian-speakers. Um, again, not necessarily um, ethnic Russians. Some of them are from mixed ethnic backgrounds, Polish, Ukrainian, and so on, but they have adopted to Russian as their primary language. Um, so these countries, one, uh, the high level of passportization, and the simply the, high, uh, the large numbers um, uh, of, of individuals in, in Latvia raise concern. Um, Now, it's also important to realize just simply the presence um, of uh, Russian speakers in a country doesn't mean that they are uh, necessarily uh, receptive to Russia's influence. Um, And I think in the Baltic states, we really see that that contrast between different generations. Uh, So the younger generation uh, in the Baltic states of uh, Russian speakers are generally highly integrated in their societies they speak the local language they have their citizenship their local citizenships and so on uh, versus the older generation sometimes that is not the case um, of course uh, what sets the baltic states apart as we know it's their eu and nato membership and particularly article 5 that uh, gives them different type of protection let's say than to countries like ukraine and georgia so in, when it comes to the baltic states i um, uh, I would be surprised to see a type of open military aggression from the case of Russia, uh, but it doesn't mean that they will not try to exploit um, some of these, um, you know, some individuals that they have there, some of their soft, po- soft power policies, uh, information warfare uh, campaigns, and so on. Now, in contrast, um, in Kazakhstan, which shares a long, vast border with the Russian Federation. And in the north has, uh, uh, you could argue, somewhat uh, disgruntled uh, Russian and Russian-speaking groups. Um, this is probably um, you know, an area where you really could see potential moves, territorial moves. At the same time, up until now, the nature of the Kazakh regime, the autocratic nature of the regime, has actually allowed it to be rather successful in kind of stamping out and drawing red lines again against um, Russia's more aggressive policies. So Kazakhstan really drew a red line against passport, passportization, it's illegal. Back even in 1993, Nazarbayev made an excellent quote, I have it in the book, where he says You know, already back in 1993, he said, uh, you know, whenever people start talking about, uh, you know, protecting the Russian, uh, you know, the Russian minorities abroad, I start really getting worried for them. It reminds me of, you know, Sudetenland and so on. So, um, you know, Kazakhstan doesn't have rose-colored glasses on in relation to these issues. um, And I think they're trying to, uh, you know, uh, trying to monitor the situation. Thank you. Questions?
2: Uh, my name is Carol Schulz I'm a visiting research fellow at American University and I wanted to ask uh, specifically about your opinion how would you imagine a, a successful containment of uh, aggressive Russian imperialism especially in Europe and uh, I would like you if, if, if you may focus on the European Union what should should we do to uh, to prevent such uh, such developments like in Ukraine or Georgia thank you
1: Well, I think first comes the realization that, uh, uh, first of all, some of the softer, Russia's softer, what we perceive as softer methods really matter. Um, uh, Soft power, uh, propaganda, influence in the media. And uh, because those uh, tools often set the groundwork uh, for further, more aggressive policies. So I think the first step is really having that realization and trying to address those. I think, to some extent, there was an assumption that, uh, well, with the end of the Cold War, you know, these were really problems of the past. Uh, there is also assumption that, uh, you know, when uh, Central and Eastern European uh, states entered the EU and NATO, this was also a problem that was solved. Uh, same for the Baltic states. But we see that is not the case. Um, even after EU and NATO membership, Russia still pursues these types of policies of influence. Uh, you know. Uh, coercion, efforts at subversion, uh, efforts at trying to sow ethnic uh, strife within the countries. Uh, so I think that is uh, the first step um, and then of course uh, uh, when it comes to uh, being uh, you know militarily prepared and ready, um, I think we've seen changes already this year uh, from the administration and from the Pentagon that clearly named Russia as a national security threat that quadrupled the um, uh, European defense budget. But I think in addition to just these, you know, hard and military approaches, we need some of that, uh, you know, so- softer, softer responses as well.
3: Hi, uh, good afternoon. Justin Tomchek, U.S.-Ukraine Foundation. Why is it that Crimea and Kaliningrad are federalized, whereas Transnistria, Abkhazia, and South Ossetia are not? Thank you.
1: You know, it's a very good question. Um, and uh, indeed, indeed, it shows the difference in how Russia has, um, you know, let's say finalized um, the solution in these different territories. Um, uh, indeed, Crimea is the only uh, territory that it incorporated, uh, Transnistria, when it, it declared independence in 1990, and Russia has still not even recognized their independence officially. Um, part, of, part of maybe, let's say, with the case with Transnistria could be the difficulty because it doesn't, well, but on the other hand, like Kalingrad, you know, it, it's not continuous with the Russian Federation. Uh, other states separated. Um, in the case of uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, the Russia recognized their independence. Um, it has not incorporated them. Indeed, over the last um, year or two, we've seen these territories actually actively try to seek greater integration into the Russian Federation. Um, And I think some of this, um, you know, that's the real threat, even um, if something starts out as a, you know, separatist movement, some sort of ethnic conflict, and it turns into a frozen conflict zone. uh, If this frozen conflict zone, like, you know, South Ossetia or Pazia are not recognized by the international community, these territories end up living, uh, you know, in a kind of... Gray zone, and then they essentially have no alternatives. Even if maybe some individuals in, you know, South Ossetia were really, you know, Ossetian nationalists and so on, but really they have no alternatives. Then uh, they're living in this gray zone, and they eventually try seeking greater integration in the Russian Federation. But why not? Maybe Russia doesn't need it. I mean, it already has achieved many of its aims. It's already destabilized those countries. It already has de facto control over those territories. So trying to officially incorporate them might be just bad PR for for Russia, and maybe it's just not worth it.
0: The non-federalized areas are not nearly as important to Moscow as either Crimea or Kaliningrad. Kaliningrad is important, for, among other things, military reasons and Crimea for a host of reasons relating both to Ukraine and to Russia.
4: Hello, I very much liked your uh, seven-step program to explain uh, Russian foreign policy, but I wonder, can you extend it to Syria, what uh, Russia is doing in Syria? (laughs)
1: Good question, and of course, um, you know, I wrote the book in 2014 and 2015, and uh, uh, early 2015. So, but I think what is interesting for me, um, again, is watching some of that rhetoric. Um, And I see some similarities in the rhetoric coming out of Kremlin today in relation to Syria, where it's being positioned um, as a type of effort to protect um, Orthodox Christians, So essentially that Russia's campaign in Syria is an effort to protect Orthodox Christians and uh, these uh, civilizations. That to me is very interesting. It's a different, it's a departure because before a lot of this rhetoric was used solely in relation to post-Soviet countries. Uh, Now extending it beyond um, is a change. Also Patriarch Kirill, uh, he also very very vocally himself, uh, you know, mentioned that this is part of, you know, uh, Russia's civilizational efforts, uh, the campaign in Syria. Uh, Another interesting twist, I think if we watch uh, Germany today um, and some of the information uh, uh, warfare campaigns that Russia has had um, against essentially that um, uh, the German government is not protecting uh, the Russian minorities in Germany, uh, particularly in relation to um, uh, some uh, alleged incidents with uh, refugees. So again, that type of rhetoric that's somewhat similar and very surprising.
4: John Sidolidis with Trilogy Advisors. I'd like to come back to the Kaliningrad issue. Um, You mentioned before that it is not contiguous to Russia. In fact, it's sovereign Russian territory surrounded by NATO, and specifically Poland, as well as Lithuania. So there are historic ethnic tensions between Polish and Lithuanian peoples along the Polish-Lithuanian border. Is there a plausible scenario where Russia would be concerned about the possibility of ethnic tension spilling over and affecting the interests of Russian citizens in militarized sovereign territory in Kaliningrad.
1: I think you read my piece for the Atlantic Council. <laughs> I wrote a little bit about this issue. Um, in, indeed, um, it, it's interesting that um, you know the, the territory, well, first of all, I mean, uh, what you call the Suval- what uh, the military strategists have called the Suvalki Gap, is a particular territory uh, be, um, between uh, in Poland, uh, between that separates um, Kaliningrad, Russian territory, and Belarus, um, which you know is a very close Russian ally. Um, their militaries are highly coordinated, and so on. So this particular territory um, in Suvalki is not only um, just a a literally kind of a short gap um, that the Russian military could potentially cross um, and uh, try to create a corridor into Kaliningrad from Belarus, but that particular territory historically has had tensions between um, Lithuania and Poland um, uh, over the issue of minorities there. Um, Again, this is not an issue where I see being immediately explosive. Again, it's more of a historical issue. But I think uh, looking at uh, Russia's past uh, track record in trying to exploit various ethnic tensions, to try to manufacture them even when they don't exist, uh, um, I think this is one issue area to watch.
0: Paul Schwartz, CSIS. One of the things we saw in uh, Eastern Crimea was that Russia actually overestimated the receptivity of the population and uh, may have uh, overreached in regard to that. Curious if you've seen any lessons learned on the part of the Russians, either to prevent that kind of uh, overestimate in the future or lessons learned to make their uh, efforts to subvert the population, if you will, a little more effective going forward.
1: Well, I think it's, a, it's indeed a very accurate observation, um, and maybe one I didn't even fully express, um, or a point I didn't fully make, but you know, just the fact that uh, some individuals in some parts of you know post-Soviet space speak uh, Russian, or even our ethnic Russians, it doesn't necessarily mean that I, they identify with the Russian cause. In fact, in, in the course of my book, I interviewed uh, about 100 people focusing on the younger generation really to gauge their, um, their perceptions. Um, and uh, you could see that really their ethnicity or, or their language often you know, didn't have much to do and didn't determine necessarily their foreign policy views or their support towards Russia. And in fact, uh, quite the opposite. After, these, um, after the war in Eastern Ukraine, many of them have become uh, much more cautious and uh, you know, hesitant about Russia's intentions. Um, and uh, you know, vocally, they say they don't want to participate in the so-called you know, Russia's uh, compatriot political project. Um, they, don't, they don't have anything to do with it. Um, I think in the case of Eastern Ukraine, um, there, were, there were many interesting things that happened there. First of all, in, in my book, I, I uh, show some evidence that already in the 2000s, um, so after the Orange Revolution of 2004, Russia was training and providing funding so, to some separatist militant groups in the Donbass. Um, so they were trying to already create that, at least you know, loyal minority uh, who would support uh, their interests. But I don't think uh, there was ever any evidence that the vast majority of uh, people in uh, Luhansk or Donetsk uh, you know, wanted Russia's protection, wanted Russia's involvement, wanted separatism or, or anything of that nature.
3: Okay. Thank you. I'm George Chelishvili, Carnegie visiting scholar in Georgetown University. So, in the first place, thank you for the presentation, and uh, I just I have to uh, admit. So, when I'm really, really looking forward to reading uh, reading your book, particularly when you mentioned kind of the role of religion. Well, myself as a Georgian citizen, I can see that this is the wicked spot in Georgia because kind of the fact that like Georgia and Russia share the Orthodoxy. This is the, the strongest, actually, kind of the point of Russian influence on Georgia at the moment. So, I wish actually kind of sometimes many of my citizens kind of become disabused of this uh, influence. So um, when it comes to kind of the further potential Russian expansion and the policies, so do you think that the current weakness in European Union, economic votes and kind of the political, okay, kind of the self-searching, gives Russian additional window of opportunity, particularly in countries like uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, not necessarily in terms of military aggression, but in terms of uh, declining European appeal and make these countries actually kind of more uh, just oriented like uh, towards Russia, and uh, the second, what is kind of the, uh, the perception within Russia? So uh, the Ukrainian adventure after Crimea, kind of Donbas, Lugansk, okay, uh, put a very strong big dent on the Russian economy. Russian economy is okay, declining. Russian economy is in big trouble because of that. So, is there any awakening in the Russian population?
1: well thank you for the question and i I have to say georgia is in fact one of my favorite countries i spent a lot of time there in 2001 on a fellowship Um, so um, in terms of uh, and yes certainly the role of the orthodox church today in russia is i think growing in importance Um, in georgia as elsewhere in europe i think russia is trying to create this new narrative um, Uh, this narrative that Russia, in fact, is the protector of traditional Christian values. So not just uh, the uh, the Orthodox Church and so on, but traditional Christian values. And that's why Russia has been somewhat successful or finding common dialogue with um, the far right and the extremist uh, parties of Europe, finding common dialogue, oftentimes, with various uh, extreme nationalist groups and so on. So I think, uh, you know, again, this is a da- dangerous and worrying trend. Um, and uh, cer- certainly, Europe uh, is uh, currently in a difficult situation with ma- many problems inside its borders and outside its borders. Uh, um, in terms of the second question, is uh, you know, have the costs uh, really uh, you know, is Russia really feeling the cost and is the population reacting? Uh, I think in terms of the, the regime, uh, the regime of Vladimir Putin, I think he, at least at this point, doesn't really care that much about the cost. It's part of uh, his project of, um, you know, staying in power, and part of it is uh, appealing to the more nationalist sentiments of the population in this idea of making Russia great, making Russia a superpower, and, you know, all of, all of those issues. Uh, um, certainly, the um, the economic costs are adding up, um, and this has been really a product of two factors: both the sanctions and the low global oil, oil and gas prices, which really hurt Russia's bottom line. But I think uh, you know, it's, it's not going to give up on its uh, project or ambitions easily. I think we, we need more years here.
5: Uh, my name is Yaroslav Martinyuk, formerly with Radio Liberty. Um, you know, assuming uh, Russians, Russians provocations, and uh, you know, perhaps even the testing of Article Five uh, in, in the Baltics, uh, short of uh, military uh, reaction by by the West, what are the chances of uh, increasing the sanctions? In form, for example, of uh, b- banning Russia from the int- interbank uh, uh, system or denying uh, visa privileges to all Duma and their all Duma members and their families, denying uh, Aeroflot landing rights, and if need be, you know, freezing Russian assets, confiscating their bank accounts. What are the, the chances of this ever happening? <laughs>
1: So, uh, consider that today already, or even even in two th- by mid 2015, many European powers were already looking to going back to business as usual with Russia. So I think it's really about having that political will. Uh, the only place where I can see it being led from is the United States, at least at this point, or you know the most vulnerable uh, Central and Eastern European countries that are clearly concerned about their security. Uh, so. Uh, you know, I think these are all potential, uh, you know, these are gr- potential great options and great policy proposals, but uh, will there be the political will to do so? I've been following
0: this very closely. And barring some major new Russian provocation, and it would have to be something beyond the types of provocations we see in the Baltic states, like the seizure of the Estonian counterintelligence official, or the seizure of the Lithuanian ship, but something major, the chances of substantial new sanctions are very slim. I think there's a good chance, but not a certainty, that the current sanctions, which are substantial, will be renewed. But something more is highly unlikely in the current environment. OK, right here, I promise. And then- all the way in the
5: back. After. Thank you, uh, Dieter Detke, Georgetown University. Uh, based on your findings, um, how would you characterize uh, Russian foreign policy more along the lines of an expansionist power and we have to be ready to uh, contain and even you know, uh, reduce and, and, and try to suppress that type of expansionism or is Russian foreign, foreign policy more along the lines of the Monroe Doctrine, let's put it that way? which would open up much more of a accommodation, if you want to, from, from our side. How, how do you see uh, the, 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 the emphasis, the small emphasis, between the two models of Russian foreign policy? Thank you.
1: Well, in my book, I argue that uh, Russia is a re-imperializing power. So uh, essentially, it's um, a power that's trying to maintain or re- re-establish its empire, so trying to... Uh, maintain and regain influence where it has lost it in its uh, peripheral uh, countries, or trying to regain territories when there are opportune moments for for doing so. So I'll... I would like to add one
0: one more point on this. Um, I don't think that in in general terms um, the international community would accept as legitimate the Minmo doctrine as practiced by the United States in the late 19th century. And in fact, what we've seen is the international community celebrate um, Obama's outreach to Cuba. Uh, And what Russia's doing in its neighborhood might be meant principally for its neighborhood, but in the 21st century, I don't think that most of, certainly the Western world, is prepared to let Mr. Putin decide the future of, of the Georgian people, the Ukrainian people, the people of Moldova, and, of course, not the Baltic peoples. Okay. Uh, all the way in the back. Uh, thank you. My name is David Nikoradze. I represent Georgian television station in Washington, D.C. Uh, Georgia didn't receive membership action plan at the NATO summit in Bucharest, but uh, NATO leaders promised that one day Georgia will be a member of NATO. How big obstacles are Abkhazia and South Ossetia for Georgia to make some steps forward? And my next question will be about Georgia-EU relations. As you know, European Commission is abolishing visas for Georgia citizens. Georgian citizens, Uh, do you believe that there will be some—I don't want to say provocation, but some attempts from Moscow to uh, to affect this process? Thank you. Well, if you don't feel comfortable.
1: Um you know, in, in terms of, um, I had two questions there, um, you know, generally I, I, I've seen consistently that when countries, in my research, when countries have tried to turn towards more, you know, Western policies, more um, agreements with the EU and so on, uh, Russia stepped up its aggressive campaigns. Now, in the case of Georgia and uh, visa agreements, I mean, I'm not sure if that uh, would be sufficient. I, uh, currently, though, um, Russia has stepped up its um, soft power efforts, um, information warfare campaigns. Uh, there's been a lot of, uh, as you probably well know, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, various NGOs and movements and protests in Georgia, uh, among those that say they favor the. Um, you know, closer relations with the Eurasian Economic Union, which is led by Russia, rather than the EU. There's been some evidence of funding of those organizations by the, you know, by, by, by Russian funds. So, I think we, we may see more of this. Um, I think I, I... I'm not sure about the first part of the question. I Sorry, first part. Uh, The first part of the question, I, I don't remember. Uh, uh, to what extent uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia will be an impediment to that? That's it. That's actually, that's a difficult question. Maybe you can. Uh...
0: I, I would say that um, there's no indication whatsoever that NATO at the present time, and I would say for the foreseeable future, is willing to consider a map for Georgia. Um, I don't rule out that at some point, I don't know, seven, eight, 10 years or beyond, that might change. But at the moment, that, that, that's where NATO is. And um, certainly, southern Ossetia and Abhazia are one of the reasons for that, but not the only one. Okay, um,
4: right Thank you very much. Paul Joyle, NSI. Uh, back in the 1990s, we had a dramatic um, document produced by the House Intelligence Committee called uh, Soviet Active Measures. And it went through a remarkable set of, of documents, including testimony by uh, John McMahon, who is deputy director of the CIA, and the scope and size of the Soviet active measure program really was uh, breathtaking. Uh, it was, back in those days, over $2 billion spent, and if you, if you take that number, and add what Oleg Kalugin said in his book, the former chief of KGB counterintelligence, that subversion is the heart and soul of the KGB. What you have described is part of an active measure program or influence program directed at subversion of a particular um, a target. Do you have any sense of what the budgetary resources are for this program?
1: You know, I will say you know, absolutely. Excellent question. Excellent comment. Um, what I'm—I feel in many ways I'm scratching the surface in this book. Um, <laughs> um, but interestingly, this is—you uh, know—probably the well, the sole book at least that I know of that tackles this question. Um, the, the these programs are all intermeshed, as I, I tried to say. And it's very difficult to f- fully determine the funding because the funding goes, just for example, even, and I list some of this in the book, you know, you take a single year to, you know, and uh, just funding for, you know, compatriot programs, it goes from the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Culture, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, from Moscow's mayor's office, from various foundations, and on and on and on. So. Um, uh, The policies, again, some of them are directed, some of them are humanitarian, some are compatriots, some of them are related to language training, some of them are related to propaganda, information, and so on. But you have to see they're all intermeshed, and uh, they're all um, seemingly pushing for the same aims. So I think uh, further study is required here. (laughs) I haven't tabulated the numbers, no, but I've tabulated the policies, so if you're interested specifically in the documents, there's a chapter in the book on that. It lists uh, uh, more than 20 uh, documents, policies, acts, and so on, specifically on the question of compatriots uh, from uh, the early 90s to present day.
0: Uh, You talked quite a bit about the Orthodox Church and its role in all of this. When you go to the southern border of the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet Union of Russia, uh, you find all the uh, Islamic uh, areas or uh, former members of the Soviet Union. How how complicated does this uh, become, or how does this fit into your general narrative?
1: Well, I think... uh... Some of this poses problems for Russia because um, uh, this effort to, well, the current Russian kind of uh, conceptualization of uh, the Russian people based on an ethnic rather than a civic definition, um, I think may pose problems for Russia itself because, of course, the, the Russia itself has a significant populations that are, you know, they're not ethnic Russians and they're not members of the Orthodox Church, they're Muslim and so on. So I think you know the the sword you know is a double-edged sword. Uh, so you, uh, as you can say, um, in the case of uh, uh, Central Asia, uh, it's interesting to see also because you know some uh, these are you know nominally Muslim uh, countries, uh, but even there um, the Russian Church often has a significant presence, as particularly in Kazakhstan. Um, so it's a mix, um, uh, depending on the country.
6: Alexis Sapchenko <clears throat> so far, this, this is the segue to the previous question. So far, Russia was very successful in using uh, Russian-speaking minorities in the countries which were trying to lean toward West, uh, Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova. However, uh, it never, ever tried to raise the issue of oppressed Russian minorities in Central Asia, like for example in Turkmenistan, where the situation is really blatant. My question is the following. Given the fact that Kazakhstan is basically a mirror of Russia in terms of it lives on oil prices, and Kazakhstan right now goes through more or less through the same process Russia does, except we do not speak about this so much, we can expect that in Kazakhstan eventually there is going to be some, let's say, problem. And the obvious scapegoat would be Russian-speaking minority. In case Russian-speaking minority acts up, what is your prediction, how would Putin react? Would he support them or would he ignore them because Kazakhstan is actually quite a convenient neighbor? Thank you.
1: It's a good question. And in the first part of your, your, your comment, indeed, the way Russia has used compatriot policies has been rather, uh, rather cynical. It's not that Russia really went out and tried to support uh, you know the so-called Russian speakers, uh, Russian compatriots, where they were really experiencing problems, as you particularly note in Turkmenistan. Uh, in fact, quite oppositely there uh, when uh, when Russia was doing a gas deal with Ashgabat, uh, they it was kind of a, a deal that they agreed okay we'll ignore your you know the, the issue with the r- russian speakers and let's just do this gas deal uh, and instead it tried to, tries to you know drum up the and fabricate these sorts of uh, russian human rights violations in other countries where they don't really seem to have any problems uh, in the case of uh, central asian countries and kazakhstan i think a lot depends on the regime and potential regime changes in the region uh, so uh, currently um You know, the the leadership, it's it's aging leadership, uh, has been in power for a long time. A number of them are, you know, in their 70s. Um, So, at the time, this current leadership, I think has been, and I say in the book, they have been rather successful uh, because of the great power they hold over society in thwarting some of Russia's more aggressive um, policies in terms of passportization. Uh, Some countries just forbid compatriot organizations like Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and so on. Um, now, if the countries uh, start uh, turning more liberal, uh, I think there could be more Russian engagement. I think if um, it, well, if there's uh, if the regime change creates some sort of internal conflict, um, again there could be potential uh, for for more Russian interference um, and trying to stoke more the ethnic conflicts there and with the Russian minorities. But a, at least for the time being. Um, uh, I think Nazarbayev has a pretty good grip on the situation in northern Kazakhstan with the Russian minorities there.
2: Franklin Holcomb, the Institute for the Study of War. Outside of Ukraine itself, how has Russia's project there been perceived in the post-Soviet space, and has Russia learned any lessons that we should that it could use uh, to further its goals in the rest of the post-Soviet space, from its projects and failures in Ukraine?
1: Well, I think first with some of these policies, again, it's important to recognize that you know Russia is not trying to co-opt hundred percent of the Russian speakers and. Uh, you know, the Russian minority. It, I think at the end of the day, it has been successful in just trying to uh, co-opt a small percentage uh, of the more radical members. They've uh, provided them with funding, military training, and so on. And I think uh, based on those you know, uh, narrow, targeted efforts, they have been ra- you know, rather successful. So in some regards, even the perceptions don't matter so much because it's not really a genuine effort to win over the, um, Uh, Win over all the Russian speakers and the Russian compatriots. In terms of some of the lessons, I mean, I I think uh, the the lessons that uh, you know, low cost, high return uh, strategy has been rather rather successful for Russia. Uh, Certainly, maybe in eastern Ukraine, uh, perhaps uh, uh, you know, the anticipation was that you know they could have moved further into eastern Ukraine, that more that more uh, Russian speakers would have been more receptive, or that the Ukrainian army would have been uh, less able to counter some of uh, counter some of those military activities. But overall, I think it's been a I think a rather successful campaign. Of course, again, it also has its limits because it's not something it's based something on coercion, you know, shadow war, and so on. It's not a genuine uh, uh, genuine movement, or it doesn't genuinely appeal to the interests to most Russian speakers and most ethnic Russians in the post-Soviet states.
5: D'Angola, American University. You've mentioned softer means, uh, uh, how European Union should counter uh, um, Russian propaganda. Could you specify what countries like, who are, which are in the highest risk like Estonia, Latvia, what could they do in, in, in regards of softer means? What can they do themselves to protect from uh, possible Russian aggression? Thank you.
1: Well, in terms of uh, you know the information warfare and propaganda campaigns, I think it would be a mistake to assume that they're only targeted towards the Russian speakers. Um, There is a huge appetite in the Baltic states and across the post Soviet space uh, for Russian language media, um, and specifically, this uh, Russian language media is uh, Russian state controlled. Uh, So it's still highly popular. Um, At the same time, you see the Russian media, um, well, Russian investors acquiring. uh, um Different medias and different organizations within the different states, so, for example, like the Lithuanian language media or the uh, some uh, some groups uh, within the Ukrainian language media. So this campaign is much broader, um, I think uh, you know first uh, you know being aware and uh, uh, but second, uh, I think there's, since 2014, there's been an effort to try to create alternative Russian language media, and Estonia and Latvia have started this initiative. There is discussion in the European Union. I think Voice of America, it seems, has been kind of getting more active and more revived. Uh, so these are some of the measures. But, and then beyond propaganda and information warfare, I think it's really about uh, the countries in question, uh, it's really the task is on them to try to engage their minorities, to, uh, to try to uh, integrate them fully, and not to leave that space open for uh, the Russian government.
3: Hi, uh, my name is Dmitry. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Uh, my question is about the economic aspect of it. Is there some sort of benefits available to those compatriots in places that are sympathetic to Russia? You mentioned passportization, that could be an economic benefit. And in Crimea, have the more people, more sympathetic to Russia, have they benefited more since uh, Russia has become in charge of it? Thank you very much
1: are that you know that it's it's collapsing, the economy is collapsing there. But I think Russia has tried to, you know, like passports. Um, some people have acquired Russian passports uh, from economic from economic incentives. So if they acquire a Russian passport, it allows them visa-free travel to Russia. They're allowed Russian pensions, you know, minor things of that nature. In certain areas, as I mentioned, for example, in Transnistria, Russian citizens, uh, Get additional pension, like a bonus each month. I think uh, it used to be something like $50 in 2008, you know, uh, so that ad- added bonus. But uh, I think these are these types of, you know, short term uh, minimal gains. Overall, you know, South Ossetia, Abkhazia, uh, Transnistria, I mean, these are not uh, places you want to end up in. And this is hardly a model for development. They've become uh, essentially gray zones uh, where there's arms uh, arms trafficking, drug trafficking, uh, human trafficking, warlords. Uh. So this is, again, you know, uh, I think hardly an appealing model.
0: Uh, our information on these areas is incomplete. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we know, for example, that um, in Crimea, uh, People who began to receive pensions from Russia received greater pensions than they received from Crimea, from, from Ukraine. But we also know that the overall macroeconomic system, situation on the peninsula got worse, problems with supplies of various kinds and inflation. Uh, we have real information on the increasing oppression of um, non-Russian groups, of Tartars, of uh, Ukrainian speakers, of uh, non-Moscow patriarchate Christian religions. Uh, We also know, moving to Georgia, in the case of Abkhazia, there's been certain improvements along the line of demarcation between Abkhazia and the rest of Georgia, which has, um, let's say, created at least a little bit of anxiety in the Kremlin and led to certain straightening of circumstances there. Um, On balance, as as Agnia says, it's not wonderful to live in any of these areas. Further questions? Right here.
2: Thank you very much. I'm Nikolai Varby of Ukrainian Journalists. I'm looking the answer on the same simple question, and like for the last two years, and I hope to find it in your book. The question, I mean, I have many friends from uh, among t- Crimean Tatars. I traveled many times to the front lines, and people keep asking me why we gave up Crimea so simply, for like just two weeks, weeks no reaction on this little green man. So why we actually it was a gift to Russians, including the billions of. Dollars or millions of dollars of other facilities, tanks, aviation, which are used right now by so-called DNR, LNR against Ukrainian forces. So why, authorities in Kiev, they did not announce state of emergency, and all of this stuff. So somebody must be punished for this. Thank you.
1: Well, I don't know if I can answer all of that. Um, but I think uh, what, uh, what impacted the turn of events in Crimea uh, was really that a lot of the groundwork had been laid. Um, the, the conditions were, first of all, what we have to consider. As I discuss in my book, uh, since the 2000s, uh, Russia started actively you know, engaging the, Ru- the Russian speakers there, the other minorities, um, handing out passports, uh, running various compatriot organizations. Uh, they also had uh, military on the ground there in the peninsula. At the same time, uh, which is uh, rather unique, is that uh, Russia also employed um, information warfare and cyber warfare right when uh, you know, military, when it was launching its military campaign. And uh, it had done the same in Georgia in 2008. So essentially it was able to um, you know, somewhat confuse the central government, prevent easy com- communication between military commanders, Ukrainian military commanders, and uh, the, central, the central government. So I think there were elements of that why it, to some extent this was achieved rather, you know, rather seemingly easily. Um, yep. There's
0: at least one more or two more factors that need to be put into play here. One, of course, you had an interim government in Kiev at the time of the, of the Russian takeover, um, not quite sure of itself. And you had the, the quote-unquote Georgian analogy, such that people in Ukraine, including such normally, um, I use this word um, conditionally, aggressive personalities as Yulia Timoshenko, um, arguing for caution on the Georgian model. And of course, you had the West arguing in conversations with the Ukrainian leadership at that time, Mr. Torchinov and Mr. Yatsenyuk, for caution. So that, that goes a long way, I think, to explaining the mild reaction in Ukraine to the Kremlin's aggression. Uh, I'll throw one other uh, insight out uh, to you, though. Uh, I- I've been in Ukraine a lot the last two years. And on one visit in the fall of 2014, um, several very high former officials claimed that Ukraine could have and should have stopped the Crimean takeover. Uh, and they could have done it if they had sent their prepared special forces, who were in fact ready to go, to take back the parliamentary building in Simferopol when the first little green men appeared. But of course, who knows what the Kremlin reaction to that would have been. It'd be a great what-if um, yes. article to
5: write. Yes. Right uh, Damien Leder, New York University.
4: In your research, did you find any
5: kind of a systematic link between Russian crime and the Russification efforts outside the borders? Thank you.
1: I'm not sure about Russification efforts, but uh, there, there is a link between Russian crime and the frozen conflict zones. I think that's quite clear, and I think that has been um, studied a bit, and some of those links have been shown. So between particularly you know, South Ossetia, Abkhazia, Transnistria, particularly some of that trafficking of different types that I discussed, uh, um, you know, there's some, uh, you know, some believe and there's some evidence to show that this actually benefits um, um, individuals in, in, in Russia. They be financially benefit from from this, and the, and these uh, frozen conflict zones enable uh, um, even uh, individuals potentially close to the Russian government to money launder th- th- in that way using these territories. Mm-hmm.
5: Questions. Petersburg National Defense University. Um, thank you uh, thank you for uh, for your uh, discussion from your perspective touching on the factors uh, that you've uh, you have um, just covered the economy the uh, the uh, the periphery the ethnic minorities uh, the expense can russia from your perspective looking generationally continue if you will this tempo is time working for or against the russians and do they
1: know that in relation to compatriots and so on? Well, when I examined uh, these issues, um, I found that it's important not to view them, uh, you know, the compatriot policies and so on, as solely as as a kind of a Putinist or Putin's government um, policy. They they have very deep roots. Um, So the um, uh, efforts to try to Ethnically mixed populations uh, to try to bring it, to bring in you know let's say well, colonize them and so on to deport individuals uh, and kind of use that as an ethnic policy that goes back to the Russian Tsarist times um, it uh, it was used in Stalin's ethnic policy um, policies towards compatriots were beginning to be formulated as they currently are under the Yeltsin's regime I mean they were kind of incoherent still and maybe not. Um, that much acted upon as much as in the Putin's regime. So I view this as something that has deep roots. Uh, and uh, I don't see this as something that you know time is running out in a couple of years. Um, or even if the, the government uh, changes in Moscow, I still see that as a type of outstanding issue um, that will remain.
0: Any other questions? Well. Thank you for a wonderful discussion, and I thank you all for coming, and for your very, very good questions. Thank you.